I also want you to know that I was not at the CPR class. Don't expect me to save your life. <laughs> I, you, know what the funny, you know what the funny thing is? Uh, not funny, funny, but it is kind of funny. Uh, like a couple years ago, somebody actually passed out in the parking lot. And everyone's like, go get Aaron. And I'm like, what am I going to do? <laughs> in the name of the Lord. I mean... I'll pull out my cell phone and be like, 911. I'm like, we have five nurses in that room. Go grab one of them. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, I, have, I have two things <laughs> to start. Number one is this. A lot of you have asked me questions if you watched the live stream last week or you were in second service. Um, I, I hurt my foot a little bit ago, and I took some ibuprofen before services last week, didn't eat anything, and I thought that was what my problem was. It was not my problem. I got a stomach bug, and I got sick at the end of second service. At the end, Mike Harmon comes up, and he's praying, and I'm like, ooh. I get up, and I go to the bathroom. Nothing happens. I'm like, I guess I'll be okay. I come back. I play that first intro, that first song after Mike prays, and I'm like, no, this is not good. I put my guitar down, and I run back off, and I was in bed all the rest of the day. I couldn't eat. Like It's like one of those 36-hour flus. Woo. I COVID tested. Not COVID. <laughs> Just a bug, and I got it. You're welcome. Uh, the, second, <laughs> the second thing is, is this. Guys, be praying for our world right now. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Um, there's not a lot of ways to be involved in Ukraine and helping the people out, except you know boycotting Russia and things like that. But uh, keep them in your prayers. Uh, keep your ears open for certain things that maybe we as God's people could actually do to help out in the midst of that. But just keep that whole situation in your prayers that you know we would see what God is going to do through the midst of it and that we would grow through whatever takes place in that. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors. And if you are new to Element, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, on the left, what you will do is get a half-page recap of what we're talking about. On the right-hand side, you'll get questions to reflect on what we talk about today. On the back, you get the verses we're going through. Underneath that is a place to take notes. If you have a smart device, you can download an app called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get the sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is James 1, 26 and 27, and it says this, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Uh, Father, today we ask that you would teach us what it means to be these people who walk with you, knowing you, honoring you and that the outward displays of how we do that would be ones that the world would see how great and mighty you are and the things that you have done in our own lives. Father, we ask that you would keep your hand upon all the things that are going on in the world and that you would teach us to be a people who glorify you in the midst of not just those struggles, but our own personal ones. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are going through the New Testament book of James. It is most likely one of the earliest New Testament books that were ever written. And today, we are finally going to finish chapter one. Yay! By talking about religion. Boo! 
okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, I know just hearing the word religion makes people want to break out in hives because of all the crazy things people have done in the name of religion throughout the ages. But I got to tell you, the word religion was never meant to be a bad word. But it's the same thing that humanity does with everything we get our hands on. We just do atrocious things with it. We take something beautiful and we turn it into something ugly. Now, granted, today by the end of this, you may not even see and understand the beauty of religion, but if you do, you're still not going to use it in everyday conversation because people are not still going to understand that word, and you don't want to give them a half an hour sermon just so they come to the place where you are. And I say that again because today James is going to talk about pure religion, pure religion and what it is. And again, as I said, religion is not a bad word. Before our modern day, this word religion, it actually brought hope and peace to people. Religion, far from what you see in TV shows and movies where if there's some crazy person in a town doing some crazy thing, it's always going to be the religious Christian guy. It's like Christians are out there to tell people, don't think about anything, just believe this and do what I tell you. Because that is not ever what Christianity taught. And as a matter of fact, I think when Hollywood and TV tells you that this is what Christians teach, they're the ones telling you not to think. Because they're telling you to say, this is what we say about them. Listen to what we say. That is not what Christianity ever did. Do you know that modern science essentially comes about because of Christianity, because there were people who said that God created the world in a way that it could be knowable. And that is how modern science begins to take place. We can know this world, all the intricacies of it, because God created it in a way that is knowable. And religion throughout the ages actually encouraged people to think about themselves, the world around them, and why they were even alive. Now, if you go to dictionaries today, most of them have this as a definition. Religion is an organized system of beliefs and rituals centering on a supernatural being or beings. And to belong to a religion meant you become part of a culture, part of a people, a community that participates in certain rituals because of their beliefs. But is that all that religion was meant to be? Just an organized system of beliefs and rituals. No. Okay. Now, for sure, it it includes some of those things. It, It really does. The word that James uses here for religion, it has its roots in ceremonial observance. But is that all that he is saying? When the scriptures are translated out of Greek into Latin, they have to choose a word that will translate this word that James is using here. And the word that they use to translate that into Latin is called religare, which is where we get our word religion from. Now, ligare meant to bind or connect. And when you put the word re before it, it meant to rebind or reconnect. That's what it's telling you. When you become a religious person, it's that we are rebinding, we are reconnecting ourselves to a God who loves us and who made us. How do we do that? How do we rebind and connect? What are the rituals we must do? We can't. There is nothing in ourselves that can make us rebind and reconnect to this God. This means this God has to do it for us. He steps into our places where we have run from him and he draws us back to himself in his own love and his own grace. God is infinitely more grace-filled and intelligent and loving than we are. So the connection starts with God himself through what we call the gospel. God does a work to rescue us from our rebellion against him. He restores us first. He loves us first. He blesses us first. But then we should still want to be a people who are bound to him. 
Now, sometimes people get this backwards. They run around thinking, what's all the things I have to do and figure out to make God love me, to make me acceptable to Him so that He will love me and draw me to heaven one day? And they become miserable because that's not true religion. What that is is legalism. People who truly long to live in God's grace of redemption do dedicate their lives on a daily basis. They want to reconnect with Him in every moment, but we understand it starts with Him First, we find our hope of life in Christ alone, as Mark just sang that song. We find our hope in Christ, not in our rituals. We, we do communion, we give, we, we want to get you involved in a gospel community, but that's not what saves us. What saves us is God himself and the person of Christ coming to rescue us. And I think people who long to be those who bind themselves to God become infinitely happier and more fulfilled in life. I think a lot of unhappiness in our world stems from this feeling of disconnection because we are not a lot of people connected with God. They haven't surrendered their lives to him. When we, when we bind and rebind ourselves to a God who cares about us and wants us to be in a relationship with him, that is very beautiful. Now, on the other side, if you take just natural selection and you say Darwin was just simply right about everything and you are here by chance and, and when you die, you're going to go in the ground and you're going to become fertilizer and that's all that you will ever be. Well, you know what? Nothing you do then matters. Everything you learn doesn't matter. All the people you connect to, all the relationships you made, none of it matters whether you're religious or not if Darwin is right in everything. But if salvation is true, and God does exist, then we have lost everything by not reconnecting with God, by not surrendering our lives to Him. It's amazing to me today how much time people like atheists, like Bill Maher is probably the biggest one today that's still alive, you know, they, they just run around spewing all this stuff because they hate religion and religious people so much, they can't leave it alone. It's like there's something deep in their gut and they just fixate on this all the time. And like, religious people, oh, they're so terrible. And they just keep talking about it. And I think it's because there's something deep down inside them that just won't let it go. Oh, what if this is really true? Now, what if God really does exist? So they want to convince everybody around them that they would never fall for something so stupid as religion. Uh, Bill Maher actually sums up a lot of the movement in America today with this. He says, we are a nation that is unenlightened because of religion. I do believe that. I think religion stops people from thinking. I think it justified crazies. And I'm not saying in the history of religion, there has not been crazies. I've met some of you. So th- there are some crazies. But they, hey, but they will, if the shoe fits, uh, if but they will cite massacres, and, and there has been some terrible things done in the Inquisitions and the Crusades, but they also fail to recognize the exponentially worse atrocities that have taken place under godless regimes. In the 20th century, tens of millions of people have been killed in the name of atheism. They fail to see that the most enlightened people and nations have come about as a result of religious activity. Some of the greatest thinkers we have ever had in the history of our world comes from a revolution stemming from religious activity. So having said that, where James goes here is that religion is not just something you do. It's not just something you believe. It's something you then begin to live out because of what God has first done in us. When Jesus gives the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he says in Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
See, Jesus doesn't just say this on the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know, you don't have to put my words into practice at all. Just believe that I died for your sins. And and don't get me wrong. We are saved by grace alone, by Christ's work alone. But Jesus did not call us to obey him so we can earn our way to heaven. But we obey him and live with him because it's the life he calls us to live and we love him first. George MacDonald said this, to obey Jesus is to ascend to the pinnacle of my being. Uh, obedience, this idea of pure religion, is what a saved life looks like when we live our faith out in our lives. Rankin Wilborn writes this, Union with Christ is not an idea to be understood, but a new reality to be lived through faith. Now, when I became a Christian, I heard this question a lot. Do you know where you'd go tonight if you died? Do you know if you'd go to heaven when you died? And it makes you think that, oh, how do I find the magic catchphrase or the words that are going to get me into heaven, the the pleasure factory where I have all the things I ever wanted come true for me because I want to get there. What are the words I need to know? It's That's terrible. I always want to ask the exact opposite question. If you don't die tonight, which is much more likely, you're welcome, how will you live tomorrow? How will we live every single day of our lives out in the world? See, I think dying for Jesus many times is much easier than living for Jesus. Because every single day, all the things we go through, we look at in our world from from the Ukraine to, to COVID to all the crazy things happening even in America right now. It's like, how do we live that out in places that are really, really hard? Being a people who are bound and rebound to Christ himself, it's much more difficult, but it's also much more engaging and attractive to others. I think when we trust Christ with our lives, we ask him to take over every single bit of us. I was reading this book recently, and the author says this, saving faith that allows me to engage, saving faith is faith that allows me to engage in interactive, grace-powered life with him beginning here and now, which death will be powerless to interrupt. It is faith that allows me to know union with Christ. And in gospel presentations today, we will talk about what salvation means, what that looks like, how we trust Christ and his provision over us, which means trusting what he did in the gospel for us on our behalf. See, we can't trust what Christ has done without trusting Jesus himself. But you also have to understand, as Christians, we're not just called to trust an arrangement. Uh, Salvation is not a contract to buy a car. We're to trust a living person. George MacDonald talks about the Apostle Paul, and he says, Paul glories in the cross, but he does not trust the cross. He trusts in the living Christ and his living Father. What he means by that is we are not trusting in a piece of wood. When we talk about the cross, we are trusting a work that Jesus did on that cross for us. And when we read in the scriptures to trust Jesus, that means we believe Jesus is right about everything. Everything, not just the things that we like, but everything. This means we begin to do what he says. We live as he calls us to live. It becomes a natural byproduct of our faith in who he is. I think if we ever want to begin to understand what the kingdom of God looks like in this world, we start to live as God calls us to live because God can be trusted. In John 7, verse 17, Jesus says this, Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. You want to know if Jesus' words were right? Do what he says. That's what he said. He goes, you want to you see if what I'm saying actually comes from God himself? Then actually do and follow through on the things that I say. 
And so James brings us to a place where I think he's powerfully driven home all these different things about our trials and the stuff that we go through. And he brings it to a point where he says, in trials, you want joy in whether you're high or whether you're low and you want to learn how to be a people who are slow to speak and slow to anger and quick to listen, start to live how God calls us to live. And he's going to move from understanding all that we've heard to now beginning to live that out in our lives. So open your Bibles at James chapter 1. It's on page 654 if you have an element Bible. We're going to now be doers of the word. I think a better way to understand the word religious and what we're talking about today, uh, because there's a lot of negative ways you can say it, but in a positive way, I would say religion is called our outward worship. Our outward worship, what people see around us. Today, the negative of religion is based upon conforming to some code of some religious body, like the Baptist. You know, you don't drink, smoke, swear, you know, hang out with people who do those things. We're probably missing a million of those, don't dance, all that, you know. But uh, you go to Jehovah's Witnesses, what's the code? The code is you gotta go door to door every day. You can't hang out with people who aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. You go to the Catholic Church and it is Mass and Confession. You go to Element, you gotta laugh at my cat and country music jokes. Just going to conform you to something. Uh, Many times what we do is we start to look at the social conventions of a place rather than what outward worship is truly meant to be. Kent Hughes writes this, The ease with which one can adopt the behavioral mores of evangelical Christianity has been sadly made easier by the gradual alignment of many Christians with the materialism and hedonism of our secular culture. What he's saying is, today there's a lot of churches that just look like everything else. There's no difference in them. And this is happening in James's day. There are these churches of these people in this diaspora, these, these Jewish Christians who are living in these places, and they're starting to look like everybody else. And James is saying, that's not true worship. True worship follows Christ in all things. And there's a lot of challenges and dangers when you sit in the midst of a culture that wants to push you certain directions. And so James says, if you think of yourself as, safely religious? Well, you need to see if you're actually worshiping Jesus. So this is what he says, James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this is about our speech, about caring for the least of these and being pure. So let me say this in a way that might help you if you're taking notes to write it down in a way that makes a little more sense. Okay, Outward religion, true religion, pure religion, outward worship involves in no particular order our words, our hands, and our hearts. Does that help? Make it much more simple? Our words, our hands, and our hearts. Great. So let's talk about those. Here we go. Our words. Controlling your tongue. You're so good at that, every single one of you. If anyone thinks his religion thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Worthless, yes. Uh, James is using an analogy of horses. And so he starts by talking about our tongues and comparing them to horses. In this culture, that would be a great metaphor in ours. Apparently, not so much. But horses in this culture, they were expensive and strong. And for many people, they brought a whole lot of fear because they seemed to be a little uncontrollable if they got loose. Horses were imageries of war. Jesus, when he presents himself as the Messiah, when he goes into Jerusalem, he rides in on a donkey because a donkey is a symbol for peace. No one's afraid of a donkey. Just don't stand behind it. But no one's afraid of a donkey. Even Shrek, donkey. You know, uh, no one's afraid of a donkey. 
cavalry troops would ride into battle and people who didn't have horses would hear it and it sounded like thunder and they'd begin to run and fear. Almost every major battle for centuries was won by those who had better trained horses. And I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse, but today we have movies like Seabiscuit and The Black Stallion, and horses just look like big pets, like my dog. We live in a place where the people have horses around us, and my dog thinks every horse is just a big dog, and she either wants to bark at them or play with them or whatever. I'm like, it's, it's not a big dog. That thing could kill you really easily. Um, but, but we have this idea that they're just big pets. Guys, if you have ever sat on a horse, you can feel the muscles in that horse. They're just wound so tight and so strong and a horse at a full gallop that is an amazing thing and it's a little bit scary this is why people put bridles in horses mouths so they can direct them now we used to go visit my mom's family in missouri i called it misery but anyway uh, and they had this old horse and its name was dusty and Dusty did not like to leave the barn. But I figured out how to make Dusty actually gallop. I would put a bridle in her mouth, and I would walk her a few hundred yards, and then I'd hop on her and go, let's go. And she would just gallop back to the barn because she wanted to be in the barn. And so one day, I put a bridle in her mouth, and I walked for like half an hour, 45 minutes, like two or three pastures away. The barn's just a little speck in the background. And I hop on Dusty, and I go, let's go. And she takes off like a bullet, old horse, like a bullet. And I'm like, I am not a cowboy. I'm sure you can tell. Yeah. And, and so I don't know how to even tie a saddle. So I'm going and I'm like. <laughs> it was the worst. And, then, and so I get down about here and I fall off. The horse runs across my back and goes all the way back to the barn. So let's talk about James's analogy, right? Well, as long as I held that bridle, that horse went where I wanted it to go. As soon as I gave that horse its way, I thought my life was over. So we got to think about our tongues and the things that we say or the things we stop ourselves from saying. Do you ever bridle yourself in situations, but then maybe you end up somewhere else and you say something like, I really shouldn't say this, or please don't tell anyone, but, oh yeah, see, I see some of you guys going, people going, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you let that bridle loose and your tongue just takes off and you say things that you should not say. You ever uh, out in the store and maybe someone just unloads on their kid or their spouse or someone who works in the store or at a restaurant and that happens. Anyone who does not think that they must bridle their tongue is deceiving themselves. This is what James says. I mean, think of how often we want people to know who Jesus is. And so we'll talk about Jesus, hopefully. You know, and so after a few weeks or a few months, maybe we're making some inroads and talking about the wonderfulness of Christ. Then you unbridle your tongue and it takes off. And all of a sudden, all of that is just out the window. See, we must be a people who learn how to bridle our tongue. One writer says it like this, A true test of a man's religion is not his ability to speak, but rather his ability to bridle his tongue. James, uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 12, 34, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When your bridle comes off, what comes out of you? Because many times that's what is actually in you. And it's a simple truth to really show us who we are. What comes out when you smack your thumb with a hammer? <clears throat> what comes out when you are arguing with your spouse or a friend or a child and you feel like they've disrespected you? How do you argue? What do you say? What do you say when you have to go to the DMV? <laughs> See? 
And, and it's not just that. This is lying and gossip and belittling others, even yourself. That all comes from an unbridled tongue. James later will talk about slanderous and critical and judgmental tongues. It is not outward worship. John Calvin wrote this. When people shed their grosser sins, they are extremely vulnerable. A man will steer, steer clear of adultery, of stealing, of drunkenness. In fact, he will be a shining light of outward religious observance and yet will revel in destroying the character of others under the pretext of zeal. But it is a lust for vilification. This explains the bloated, pharisaical pride that feeds indulgently on a general diet of smear and censure. What he says is many times, we as a people, we will get rid of the grosser sins that everybody sees, and yet we hold on to how we talk about others with our tongues. And it is so difficult. This is why James says you have to bridle it. This is about being habitually unbridled. We keep doing this. You're a church attendance. It could be perfect. You may know all the Bible study answers and all the trivia things you go to. You may give and pray and consider yourself very religious. But when you don't control your tongue, your outward religion is worthless if you understand what he's saying. There's an old story where someone once said to John Wesley, my talent is to speak my mind. And John Wesley said, that's one talent God wouldn't care a bit if you buried. <laughs> True. Because what? Wise people are those who are slow to speak. They're quick to listen and slow to anger. Okay, so second one, our hands. This is care for the least of these. I'm going to do my best to try and offend everybody today, by the way. Uh, Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And that means in their distress. Now, the reason I keep trying to use the word the least of these is that the orphans and widows in James's culture and that society were the least of these. When you read that word affliction or distress, it literally means this pressure. And the pressure is from not having food or clothing or shelter, all the things that we think that we need. And granted, today, there is a large social structure that we have that covers a lot of these things. So when I talk about the least of these, it's not necessarily the homeless, because there's a lot of homeless people who just want to be homeless. But if you took an outside look throughout the ages, the most vulnerable are those who are thought of less than by everybody else. And in James's day, that is the widows and the orphans. But today, there are different least of these in the people that are around us. Those are getting neglected and abused or both, and no one seems to care. So uh, think about the debate that we have had in America about immigrants and detention centers and all of that. And it horrifies me because both sides of the political aisle use these people as a way to leverage against the other person. It's like they had no use for them except for how they could further their political agenda. Like, you would have thought during the last presidential campaign that Donald Trump was riding around in a truck throwing people in the back just to separate them from their kids. And then all of a sudden the election gets over and nobody talks about it anymore. I have a friend who actually lives down there and his church goes and he tries to help these people to reconnect and he's trying to love the least of these. And he says now, nobody's talking about it, nobody seems to care that it was such a big deal and everybody's using them. And I hope I'm not using them just as a sermon illustration to make a point. What I'm telling you is we all need to be more honest about where we are with our hearts and our comfort, which is very hard to do in America. The truth is religious observance, no matter how perfectly observed and appropriately reverent, are empty if there is no concern for the least of these. 
This is what James is saying. Now, this is one of the reasons that element, we try to bring things in front of you all of the time. It's like you guys give to us, we give to those around us things that you may not even see. Last week, we brought Captive Hearts Ministry here. And that is a ministry that helps women who have been abused and, and sex trafficked and beaten and who are on drugs to bring them into a program that helps them to grow out of that, that gives them hope and meaning and purpose, the least of these, that nobody really ever cares about. So we bring them up and talk to you about that. It is why we actually pay an entire year budget every year to a church plant that we are partnering with in Thailand. Because in Thailand, what they will do is in those northern villages, they will send little girls down into the bigger cities to prostitute them out, to send money home to their families. And we want to be able to do something that makes a difference in that so they can grow and learn to give some hope there. It is why we do something as simple with uh, Valentine's Day, right? You got royal family kids and who are, work with foster kids. And we say, hey, why don't you guys write some Valentine's Day cards to these kids and to all the kids at Delta? It's a way to show them that somebody is thinking about them and loving them. It's why we support and give money to CareNet, who helps women in the most dire of circumstances, whether it's a woman thinking thinking about an abortion or someone who actually had one or someone who just had a baby and doesn't know what to, their next steps are or what they're supposed to do. We help them. There, there is this legal bus that comes through our area once a year, once every year and a half to help underprivileged people if they have legal problems. And they ask us, like, hey, can we meet at your place? And every year we say yes, and then they find someplace better so they don't use us. But we usually say yes, you can, you can meet here. Guys, uh, it, do you know, understand why we work so hard with Delta and the teachers and the students? There's a lot of people in our city who see those kids as the rejects, and they're not. They're not. We are to be those who reach out to the least of these. And there's always so much more. There's something that God could place on your heart. But we can come here and we can sing songs every week and pray for one another. You can tend to gospel community, listen to me or someone else give a sermon. But if we ignore the needy, our worship is meaningless because it's not being lived out. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, I'm going to jump through this a little bit, but this is what, what God says. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. The least of these. See, my goal, I don't want to make you feel guilty. I want to encourage you that God has laid so much in front of you, so many things that he has allowed us to be able to do. And it is so easy to forget what he calls us to. And so we must remember this lesson over and over. Let me show you how, how easy it is to, to forget this. Uh, in the center of Piccadilly Circus is a statue to uh, Eros. Uh, most people think it's uh, to romantic love, but here, here's the picture. Now, there are people who go to Piccadilly Circus and they take pictures in front of this. And they're like, oh, look how great this is. People ask one another to marry themselves in front of this picture. And they all forget why it's actually there. This is actually there in remembrance of a guy named Lord Shaftesbury. Lord Shaftesbury brought a great awakening to England to take care of the least of these. He looked at working conditions and how child labor was being exploited. He looked at widows and orphans, you know, true religion that God accepts. He stepped into these places and he brought about a whole movement in England that started to change. It was, it was short-lived, but it was very intense and they erected this statue to him. Now, here's another picture of it. 
People now will walk by this and have no idea why it's even there. That's how easy we forget. D.L. Moody tells a story about when he had a difference of opinion with the man who was, thought he was very close to God. Said he knew the right songs, uh, prayed to God every day, felt like he had a mountaintop experience with God every single day. When Moody says, well, who have you helped? And who have you discipled? And who have you led to Christ? The guy couldn't think of anybody. And so Moody says this, sit down. We don't want that kind of mountaintop experience. When a man gets so high that he can't reach down and save others, there's something wrong. Our care for the needy is not voting for certain political candidates. I mean, I guess it could include that, but it is personally living. How do we live this out in our lives, caring for others? Because we are to be involved in people's distress. And that could be illness. It could be fractured relationships. It could be someone with unemployment. You just take them groceries. But true religion reaches out to people in their needs. It is meant to be practical. Are you following? Yeah. All right. Our hearts. Here's the one I'm going to whittle down, helmets, attendance right now. Um, this is a, a pure life. To keep oneself unstained from the world. This is a tough one because I do not want you to think that I am talking about morality because morality doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. But when we trust in the gospel, we begin to live differently. Like I said the last couple weeks, when we follow Jesus, we believe that he is right about everything. Period. Today in our world, just like James's day, there is a cultural air that everybody was breathing and it was polluting everything. Can you say that we relate to that? Yes, we do. We have a cultural air that wants to push us to stop trusting Christ and trust what our culture is pushing towards. That our culture wants us to believe what they deem to be true rather than what God says is actually true. And James says you can't live that way. You can't. One of the ways people will know that we follow Jesus is our lives do look different. Not hopefully in a weird way, but in a way where we can disagree and yet we still love with our tongues and how we speak and how we love others, the least of these, but also what causes we support and get behind. So let me give you a very non-controversial example. Abortion. Okay. Um, Abortion in our country and most of the world is an acceptable practice for really even matters of convenience, so the baby is the wrong gender, which makes me wonder how hardcore feminists actually deal with this because most people that want to abort a baby because of gender want to abort girls and not boys. But here's the deal. We are called to be a people who stand up for all life, all life, period, whether it's young or old, whether it's black, white, brown, yellow, poor, rich, whether it is born or whether it is unborn. And James has this lament that kind of goes back to the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah 520 says this, What are those who call evil good and good evil? Who, Who today, when you stand up for a kid who is unborn, people call that evil, that there's something wrong with you. And yet they're calling, you know, good evil and evil good when we want to kill them. Who puts darkness for light and light for darkness? Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? Wanting to not offend people, ignoring the issues, don't make the issues go away. But on the other side of that, people have also asked us an element on right to life month. Like, why don't we put little crosses out in front? Because they do that to show these are the aborted kids and, you know, we are standing with them. We don't do that. Do you know why we don't do that? Because I don't ever want a woman who has had an abortion or thought about it to think they wouldn't be welcomed here. I don't want them to think, oh, oh my goodness, I went there. I would be judged. I can never be honest about my life. There is hope for everyone. There is redemption for everyone. We are for life, life, that God wants to restore us to it. All right, 
Can we dial it back a bit? You can start listening again if you tune me out. How about something like your TV viewing? You're like, oh, I'm tuning back out again, right? <laughs> what you watch, or how about what we read? Our purity, how we live, puts God's call in our life on display. Before what society in general thinks, before anybody thinks, how we live is going to show who we view God being. And yes, at times, when we follow Christ, it will put us directly in the crosshairs of the world that is around us, especially people who think they're more enlightened or maybe more self-centered. We must ask ourselves in the end, what is more important, our love for God or our love for how people see us? And it should be our love for God. Again, James, when he talks about these things, he's trying to help us to see what it means to live out our lives, living out the faith that we have. We have spent this whole first chapter talking about all that God does to bring us to himself, to see who he is. So how do we then now begin to live that out in the world around us if we say we truly have loved God, if we truly understand the gospel? See, it's easy to be deceived by our culture. It's easy to be deceived by our own religiosity, and even worse, when they both start to look the same. So what does James say? He simply says, keep a tighter rein on your words because we love Jesus. Secondly, you must care for those around us because he first loved us. And third, we must honor God above all other things in our life because our purity, our life, is a reflection of him. We have no righteousness on our own. We have God's righteousness that was given to us. And so when we live out our lives in the world and we are displaying our righteousness, we're displaying him. We're displaying his. And that's what's important for us to understand. We are not saved by how well we display that righteousness. We are saved because of what he's done. But as a people who understand in humbleness the great grace that we've received, how God has brought us to himself, it should make us want to be a people who live differently who want to live as people of his great kingdom and speak about what our great king has called us to, life and hope and freedom and grace, that all people can be those who can live in that. We surrender our lives to him because he is good. And that teaches us to be a people who get to live in his joy, his righteousness, his grace, his peace. That's what we proclaim. That's what we live out. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And as they do, as part of this for you this morning, I'm going to invite you to take communion. And communion is a place where we remember what Christ has done to save us, the righteousness that was given to us by himself. And that is why you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice. As You know, dip it. No, I keep forgetting. I got this habit in my head. You drink the purple water. As a, as a reminder of Christ's blood that was shed, it is a reminder of what he did to save us because our righteousness on our own is not a righteousness. It is just rags. It is just rags. And God lays his righteousness on us as a people. I think too often when we hear words about our, our words and our hearts and our, and our hands and, and how we live, we always think that's for somebody else. Well, if somebody else lived like that, well, then my life would be better. It doesn't matter what that other person's living like. It matters how we worship God outwardly in what we do because God has rebound us to himself. He's brought us to himself. He has reconnected us with himself. And in that connection with him, we will then live out our lives worshiping him. And our lives will show how we are bound to him, how we trust him, how we honor him. Do we really think he's right in everything? And if we do, 
our lives begin to look different. That might be a slow, you know, moving to that place, but they do begin to change because God saves us where we are, loves us where we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. And if you need prayer today, you know, grab Sarah at the Welcome Center. She would love to connect you with one of us, and we could pray for you. Maybe you're in a spot today where you just feel like everything is overwhelming you, and you haven't been with your words or your hearts or, or your hands, and you've been so inward-focused rather than outward, or you've been breathing the culture air so long that you refuse to believe what Christ has said that is right. Because we are a people who are meant to trust Him, as I said, in everything. And if you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you. Um, There's offering boxes next to all the doors. We give because God gave to us. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response. And one of the things that when you give to us, we give out in the world. I think we gave out over, what, $70,000 last year to different things? Yeah. Because of your generosity. And so we, we become a generous people because God has been so generous with us. And so we want to be those people. So we give you the opportunity to give every single week. Um, take the sermon notes, meet with some people, talk through some of those questions that are in there, and really ask God to move you to a place where your life outwardly reflects what he has done and doing inwardly. Because until that happens, we don't have true outward worship. It's not, quote-unquote, pure religion, because we want to live out what God is doing in here. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be this people who live in outward worship of you. That you have created this entire world and there are so many things that naturally worship you. And yet we are the ones who tend to lag behind that we become so focused upon ourselves that we fail to have an outward worship that reflects the goodness of who you are. So teach us to begin to live out the great salvation that we have received, that you have bound yourself to your people, that you have reconnected us with you. And that we would in turn begin to have our words and our hands and our hearts reflect who you are. Give us the strength of conviction to stand up for what is true, but also doing it in a way that loves your image in others. That we want all people to know and walk and love and know you. Because we have been saved by your grace. Have us be those who live out your grace and what that looks like to the world around us in very tangible ways. That we would worship you, not just with our hearts, but outwardly with all that we do. And that you'd be glorified by that. Amen. So take a couple moments right now as they start to play through this song. And ask yourself maybe the places where your words or your hearts or your hands have not been reflecting who God is. Are there places where you say, I, this is what God has said, but I don't agree with that. I'm going to go with what I think in this. Ask God's Spirit to come and confront you in those places. And to show you what the truth actually is. That we'd be a people who lay all of ourselves Open before him, 
because we know that he is trustworthy and good and we can do that and ask him to rebind us up to be a people who live out the religion that we say that we have in ways that are tangible to the world around us.